This morning marks our third consecutive Sunday learning from the brilliant Apostle Paul. Paul, through his letter to the Romans, uh, teaches us uh, many things about how to live as people and as Christians. So who was the Apostle Paul? Can I tell you about my friend Paul? Not, not the Paul back there, but the, the very, very old Paul. Paul was a young, successful Jewish leader during the time of Jesus' ministry. He was probably in his late 20s, actually, during Jesus' ministry. He was highly educated in both Greek philosophy and the Jewish scriptures. He received the ancient equivalent of a Ph.D., Sometimes we don't think about that, but Paul was a very smart man. Now, sometime after the death of Jesus, he had heard rumors about this small group of fanatical Jews who claimed this Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Paul knew his Bible, his Hebrew Bible, and so he knew this spelled trouble. Therefore, he tried to stamp out the Jesus movement by persecuting all who claimed to follow Jesus. But one day, if you know the story, one day while Paul was on his way to oversee Project Persecution, God knocks him off his high horse, literally. He's blinded by a light, knocked off his horse, and that's when he hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? These were the words of the risen and ascended Jesus. Though not visible, Jesus was clearly speaking to Paul audibly. Now, if this happened to you, (laughs) you would probably respond the same way. You'd be creeped out at first, and then you would believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. If you heard Jesus speaking audibly to you, You would know that Jesus is the long-awaited rescuer of Israel. And after this revelation, Paul returns to his Bible, the, the Old Testament as we know it, and he discovers anew what God has been up to all this time. God, he discovers, has been at work rescuing the world all along. And it's all come to a head, it's all come to completion in Jesus who is God in the flesh. So once the church's biggest threat, Paul becomes the church's biggest asset. He starts traveling about, eagerly shares the good news of Jesus to whoever is willing to listen. He receives beatings and threats and persecution, much like those he doled out in a former life. But get this, none of it all, none of it, None of the challenges, the struggles, none of it dampens his courage or slows him down. He keeps on proclaiming the good news of Jesus. This gospel, he has discovered, is the power for what? This gospel is the power for salvation to all who believe. That's Paul's conviction, and with this conviction, he becomes the church's most significant missionary. Now, One of the places Paul really wants to travel is the city of Rome, all right? Rome, Italy. Every major city in the Roman Empire had a Jewish synagogue, and Rome had about 11. 
They, Rome had about four million people in that day, in the first century, which was unheard of. It was a, a massive population for that time period. Four million people. Now, Paul longs for these people to know that Jesus is Savior of the world. And so he sets his heart on going to Rome someday to proclaim this message. But Rome is a long way from the Middle East, if you know your geography, especially without planes, trains, and automobiles. Yes, that's a reference just a year after I was born. (laughs) So it takes Paul a while to finally get to Rome, but when he arrives, he's a Roman prisoner on trial for disturbing the peace. Before he arrives, and this is our letter, this is what we're about to read from today, before he arrives, he writes a letter to the Roman Christians. An unlikely group of Christians had sprung up in the godless soil of Rome. An unlikely group of Christians had sprung up from the soil of Rome. And Paul learns about them, and he writes them a letter, both to introduce himself and to share what he's learned thus far as a follower of Jesus. Now he's in his, probably his early 50s here. So this letter is the ancient document we call Romans. And we have the privilege to learn from it again today. Before we read a a very small part of this letter, join me in prayer. Lord, it is quite incredible that we have access to an ancient document like Romans. It is even more incredible that you still speak to us through it 2,000 years later. Do it again, God of grace. Holy Spirit, speak to us again through your word, speak into the real situations we face, the real lives we live, the real challenges, and the real blessings. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you guys hear me all right? I feel like I'm shouting. I am on, right? All right. They just don't want me to be too loud. (laughs) Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Like last week, I want to strongly encourage you to pull out a Bible from the chair in front of you and follow along. I don't always do that, but like I said, Romans is is a difficult book to follow sometimes. So we're on page 917. Page 917. You're not going to do it, are (laughs) you? The people are looking down like, nah, that's like two feet. I don't know if I can do it. (laughs) You're not going to do it either. All right, so Romans 6, verse 1. Paul is making a logical argument about what it means to live as those who belong to Jesus. And he's doing it very methodically and carefully because he's a philosopher. He's trained to be a, a, a careful thinker, and so he's bringing us his careful method of thinking in this letter. It's not the most exciting read, all right? But every word matters for us and for our lives. Page 917, listen to God's word. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? I'm sorry, but I have to stop right there. Hold your place. Paul has already said a lot about sin and grace in the last five chapters, but 
you may not recall it. So real briefly, for Paul, this is important. Sin, what is sin? Sin is not just doing wrong, all right? Sin is a power or a force that pulls us away from God. Sin is a power at work in the world, and it aims at disconnecting us from God and from our neighbor. Sin is a force to be reckoned with. When we surrender to its power, sin makes us miserable. In the short term, we may feel a rush of pleasure, but long term, sin is the perfect way to ensure a miserable life. This is what Paul has in mind when he uses the term sin. Sin as a power that makes us miserable. Now how about grace? Grace has a double meaning for Paul. First, grace is unearned free gift of forgiveness. The unearned free gift of forgiveness. This is what we most often think of when we think of the word grace. Grace is what makes friendship with God possible. As I talked about last week, grace is justification by faith. But there's a second meaning of grace, and this is the one we sometimes overlook. Grace is also God's action in one's life. God's ongoing action in a person's life is grace. This side of a grace, it not only forgives us, but it empowers us and inspires us to live more like Jesus. It enables us to become holy, as we used to say, before holiness went out of style. (laughs) Theologians call this side of the coin sanctification. That's the side of grace Paul is about to explore in detail. So sin and grace— What you think about those things will shape your life, all right? Sin and grace. So now that we're caught up to speed with how Paul understood these things, let's return to verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? In other words, should we continue to surrender to the pull of sin so that God can keep pulling us out? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life of life. For if we have been united with him, with Christ, in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, the person we used to be, was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. To that force that makes us miserable. For whoever has died is freed from sin, but if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, 
will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, and this is what Paul's been leading up to, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now how do we do that in practice? How do we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God? Paul tells us in the next verse, he moves from theory to action. Verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. In other words, do not let sin rule over you like a master, for Jesus is our only master, and he makes a much better master. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot there. I'm sure you understood it all right after the first reading, yeah? (laughs) If so, you should be the one up here talking, not me. (laughs) Paul can be hard to understand, right? But let me remind us that Jesus commanded us to love God with our minds, even when it hurts. Thinking can hurt, but God wants us to love God. God with our minds. So let's put our minds to work this morning in obedience to Christ. Just do the best you can, and I'll do the same. Is that a deal? All right. I want to start with a deep dive into verse 11, verse 11, which scholar Douglas Moo calls the hinge of the paragraph, like a door hinge. Everything hinges on this verse. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Repeat after me, I am dead to sin and alive to God. One more time, I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be dead to sin and alive to God. Perhaps an illustration will help. The illustration I want to put on the table is that of zombies. Yes, zombies. Stick with me for a minute. I know this is going to connect with some of you more than others, okay? I know that, but just stick with me. What does it mean to be dead to sin and alive to God? Well, zombies are both dead and alive. I've got Harrison's attention, all right. (laughs) Zombies are both dead and alive. So there's a a zombie apocalypse TV show. It's been popular for a while called The Walking Dead. Has anybody heard heard of it? Maybe just the name. Maybe you've seen it. I I personally think it's disgusting and disturbing, but uh, that's just me. Uh, So The Walking Dead. Okay, let's think about the name. How do the dead walk? According to the show, the dead walk, because it's a little gross, 
the corpses are revived in the form of zombies. <laughs> the zombies are the walking dead. Harrison's like, is he talking about zombies in church? <laughs> this is the best sermon ever. <laughs> the zombies are both dead and alive. They walk because they've been revived, right? But even though a zombie can walk, it is no longer human. It has become subhuman. It was once human, but now it is less than human. All it can do is evil all the time. We might say a zombie is dead to God, but alive to sin. Dead to the forces of God's goodness, and alive only to the influence of badness. That's the walking dead, according to the show. But how do the dead walk according to Paul? According to Paul, the dead walk because some people have died with Christ and therefore have died to sin. It's the opposite, yeah? We were once less than human, in the way we thought and acted in the world, in the way we treated others. We were once less than what God intended for humans. But we have died to that less-than-human self. We have died with Christ to the person we used to be. We are now dead to sin. Say, I am dead. Dead. (laughs) Dead to the power that keeps us away from God and God's benefits. But we're not only dead, we're also what? We're also walking. We are the walking dead. (laughs) We are walking in the newness of life, as verse 5 says. Because we've been not only buried with Christ, but raised with Christ. According to Paul, those who have died with Christ are then raised to new life. So we're alive to God alive to God's transformative love revealed in Jesus, alive to the world God so loves, alive to the possibilities of cooperating with God as God heals this hurting world. So my friends, we are not zombies. Sorry to disappoint you, Harrison. But we are the walking dead. We have died to the ruling power of sin as surely as Christ died on the cross, but we have been made alive, more alive than ever, thanks to the resurrection power of Jesus. We are dead, but now we are alive. Okay, that's the end of the zombie talk. Did you survive that? Yeah? You know a preacher is stretching hard for an illustration when he starts talking about zombies, but here we are. But this is how Paul wants us to view ourselves. This is the perspective Paul wants us to have about who we are as individuals. That's why he is not only suggesting this, but he is commanding it. Consider yourselves. It's an imperative verb, a command. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is urging us to constantly view ourselves in this light as people who are actually and presently dead to sin's power and as people 
who are actually and presently alive to God. Alive to God's always available presence and power. Is this how you view yourself? Is this how you consider yourself? If someone could put a microphone inside your brain and listen to the way you talk to yourself, they probably can these days with all the technological advances, what would they hear? If someone could put a microphone in the little inner dialogue, you know the the inner dialogue that goes on in your head? If you don't think you have it, that's what's going on in your head right now. (laughs) I don't have inner dialogue. That's it, my friends. (laughs) What would we hear? Would we hear what Paul wants to hear? I am dead to sin and alive to God. The old me is gone. The new me is here. Thanks to Jesus, I have my life back again. Now let's get to work, God. Let's go to work together, restoring what's broken. Is that what they'd hear? Is that the the inner dialogue, the talk that goes on in your head? Or... Would they hear something more like this? Stupid. You're so stupid. You're such a failure. You're always messing things up. You have no idea what you're doing in life. You are nothing but a burden on others. What's going to happen to you? You are fat and ugly and old, and you're going to die alone. That's the PG-13 version of the inner dialogue that goes on in some of our brains, truth be told. And it keeps us alive to sin, and it makes us miserable. Now studies show that this mental chatter, this self-talk, is 60 to 70% negative for most people. 60 to 70% negative, this, this, this inner dialogue. Maybe you're abnormal, And I know some of you are. But I suspect this is no different for a lot of Christians. I suspect the majority of our inner dialogue is negative. It may even be worse for some of us who have been instilled this guilt complex. (laughs) But that is never what Paul had in mind. That's not how sin and grace operate in Paul's understanding of things. It's not how sin and grace operate in God's way of dealing with us. So instead of considering yourself a failure or whatever other dreadful curse we place upon ourselves, Paul urges us instead to consider ourselves dead to sin, including the sin of self-hatred. Paul urges us to view ourselves as alive, alive to the loving presence of God, alive to the living presence of Jesus right now. If this is the dominant picture you hold in your mind, it will become a reality. You see, that's how our brains work. If you consider yourself a failure, over time you'll become a failure. Whatever your categories of success and failure are, psychologists call this the self-fulfilling prophecy. This is how our brains work, okay? So think about great athletes, okay? When they prepare to do some great athletic feat, great athletes like Ethan, right? He's graduating, you know, we're celebrating that. Got your attention now, Ethan? All right. Great athletes. (laughs) When they prepare to do something, 
okay, like hit a home run, okay, what do they first have to do? They first have to imagine themselves doing it. When Steph Curry, amazing sharpshooter in basketball, when he steps up to the free throw line, he has to envision the ball going through the net. And it works 93% of the time. (laughs) So that's why Paul urges us to consider ourselves. He's talking about our imagination, envisioning ourselves going through the day alive to God and dead to sin. That's what he's talking about. That's how it works. Consider yourself, imagine yourself, envision yourself going through your day, interacting with the people you're going to meet. Envision all of this happening with God, glowing with liveliness and presence. And sin, this power that pulls at us, imagine that dead. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we do this, it will become a reality. Sin will have no power over you. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) It's not to say you'll never be tempted again, of course. It's not to say you won't occasionally trip up. Paul's not talking about perfection here. He's talking about continual spiritual growth. Ever-increasing conformity to the character of Christ. Becoming more like Jesus. How is this possible? It's possible because we have been separated from the rule of sin by our participation in the death of Christ. It's possible because we have been liberated from the pull of sin because we've been buried with Christ. I don't know how it works, but it's possible. We have been transferred out of the state of sin and relocated into the state of God. Christ's resurrection achieved that for us, and this act of relocation is an act of God. It's decisive and final, as final as death itself. That's why he uses the metaphor of life and death. We have died to sin. That's it. Now we are alive to God. Therefore, verse 10, therefore we can live for God. We can actually live for God, as verse 10 says. Who are you living for? Who am I living for, really? Are we living for ourselves, our happiness? What are we doing with our lives? We often ask this question of graduates, not to pick on you again, but kind of to pick on you again. (laughs) But we also ought to be asking it to everyone. What are you doing with your life today, next week? What are you doing with your life this summer? Are you living for yourself? Are you living for sin? Are you living for God and God's good purposes in the world? Friends, the good news is that we can actually live for God. We can actually walk in newness of life, living like Jesus, always aware of God's living presence. That's the reality available to us, to us who belong to Jesus by faith. And that's what Paul's trying to persuade the Roman Christians, and he's straining himself to try to explain it, as am I. It's not easy to believe that such a life is really possible, 
but it is. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Now to close, let's go back to verses 1 through 10. This is the reason we can consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. It's not because of anything we've done. It's because of what God has done. What God has done shapes what we can do in response. Our response of considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, it's just that. It's a response. A response to what God has done for us. God's action is always first, though. Here's what God has done. God has given us an identity makeover. We are not who we used to be, not if we've placed our trust in Jesus. We are not as selfish and as angry as we used to be. That's one of the first things I noticed upon God's conversion of me as a a boy. When we surrender to God, we become a different person. We don't automatically break old sin habits. The power of those sin habits have been broken for us, though. The power has been broken by God. And what's more, we're placed in the sort of relationships with God and others that make it possible for God to remake us from the inside out. So here's what God has done for us, according to verses 1 through 10. Here's the reality of who you are in Christ, even now and lasting forever. This is the self-talk God desires to hear going on inside your brain. Verse 2, you died to sin, past tense. Verse 3, you were baptized into Christ's death. You were Buried with Christ, you have been united together, united together with Christ in his death. Now that's the dead part of your identity. You died to everything bad thanks to the work and death of Jesus Christ. Now on to the walking part of our walking dead identity. Verse 4, you can walk in newness of life. How? Verse 5, Because you've been united together with Christ in his resurrection. Verse 6, your old self, who you used to be, was crucified with Christ. This means, verse 7, you are freed from sin. Freed from the power that makes human beings miserable. Therefore, verse 8, you live with Christ. You will live with Christ, seeing him face to face one day at the end of the age. And even now, you live with Christ through his spirit living in you. Friends, all of this, this is the identity makeover God has brought into our lives, into all who trust in Jesus. Do you know this? (laughs) Do you believe it? Can this become your self-talk? It's a done deal. It's non-negotiable. It's grace, the second meaning of grace. Grace as God's ongoing action in your life. God's continuing action to make you more and more like Jesus. So how should we respond? If we just understand 1% of what Paul is saying in Romans 6, that should be enough. How should we respond? 
Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound, as Paul wonders in verse 1? No, of course not. But how should we respond to our new status as beloved children of God, freed from sin? We respond by acting like who we are. (laughs) Our state of grace needs to become our reality in practice. We are to become what we are. (laughs) That's how the New Testament understands our identity formation. We become what we are in Christ. Or as we might say, we are to become what we are becoming thanks to the continuing work of God in your life. This is possible because of Christ's work. We can walk in newness of life because we are dead to sin. The first step is believing it's possible, even for you. So, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God, not in your own strength, but in Christ Jesus and in his strength. Let us present ourselves to God, for he is our master, and he'll give each and every one of us a better life than we ever could have imagined. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, your good news is so good and sometimes unfathomable, hard to understand, and yet it's so good. Help us, Lord, to grasp the reality of who we are in Christ, dead to sin but alive to God. And may the same grace that made us friends with God May that same grace carry us through so that our friendship with God would rub off on us and we would actually become more like Christ. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world around us that you so love. May you do this in all of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.